Hi, I'm Dr Dan Holmes. I'm a specialist anaesthetist at the Sunshine Coast University Hospital and I'm also an OSMAT mission team leader. Dan, thank you very much for talking with the Senate today. I know you've had a very busy few years, so we appreciate you finding the time. Oh, that's no problem. I've, I'm an expert at looking busy even when I'm not, so it's not a problem. To paint a picture of where you are today, I'd like to start at the beginning of your medical career and ask what inspired you to become an anaesthetist. So the main thing I think was, you know, it's, I've been an anaesthetist for 20 years and uh, back then when I was a junior doctor, I, I became a medical registrar. I initially wanted to go into general medicine, but I, I found that I liked looking after, I guess, the sickest patients. So, you know, w- whether that be severe asthma or people with severe pneumonia. And then if I had someone who was really very unwell, the people who came along and helped and took those patients and, you know, made them well again were the anaesthetists. They ran intensive care unit. They obviously took people to the operating theatre for emergency surgery. And I looked at that and I thought, I think that's what I'd like to do. So so I chose to go into anaesthetics with partly with an eye on anaesthetics, but also with an eye at that time on intensive care. And then, you know, that's what I did. So I trained uh, both in anaesthesia and in ICU. I'm now a retired intensivist. So I, did, I have worked in ICU and then in Australia worked uh, as a VMO in ICU when I worked in Darwin. But now I stick to anaesthesia. And what about your choice to become a doctor in the very beginning? Was that influenced by family or just something that you were interested in? Yeah, No, it wasn't influenced by family and neither was I a person who, who, you know, from the age of 10 thought, oh, I really want to go into medicine. I probably made a pragmatic decision. I was very lucky in that I was, you know, academically able and I was interested in science and it just seemed like a sensible thing to do. And I certainly had doubts, not probably at medical school, but in my very junior doctor years when the hours are very difficult as to whether it was the right decision. But very soon after that became clear to me that I I was lucky and landed on my feet and it was the right thing to do. Where did you train, Dan? I went to medical school in a place called Dundee uh, in Scotland. I was there for five years, had a great time did uh, some my medical jobs in uh, mostly in regional areas in Scotland and worked with some incredible people there. I worked in New Zealand, did my first anaesthetics job in New Zealand in Hawke's Bay, which produces fantastic wine. So that was uh, a very enjoyable year. And then I did most of my anaesthesia training uh, between Glasgow and Edinburgh. So I did a lot of traveling between the two. I also worked for a year at the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne as a fellow I actually ended up, I think I calculated once I worked in something like 25 different hospitals, which I think was a good thing. Someone once said to me, you know, when I was talking, answered a similar question and said, you've worked in a lot of places. But I think that's, you know, I've seen people who stay in the same place for their entire career. And that's great. And lots of good colleagues who do that. But it definitely gives you a a flavour of the different ways that you can do things if you work in different places. So I'm quite, I think it's been quite good for me to do that. As you said in the introduction, Dan, you're an OSMAT team leader. For those who don't know, what is OSMAT? OSMAT stands for the Australian Medical Assistance Team. And really that's the Australian government's medical humanitarian capability. So in the past, let's say 30 years ago, if there was a disaster, particularly overseas, that required medical assistance, then, you know, the, the response to that might be from different states and say New South Wales and Queensland and so on would send some medical team, but there'd be limited coordination of that. And then the problem with that in humanitarian medicine is that you end up with the people who can do one set of skills, but not necessarily the set of skills that you require. 
teams are not necessarily self-sufficient, so then they end up taking resource from an already struggling local population. And so the Australian government decided really after the, the tsunami and the Bali bombings, they created a, an organisation in the Northern Territory called the NCCTRC, which is a bit of a mouthful, but it's the National Critical Care and Trauma Response Centre. And one of the arms of that centre is the OSMAT and the ability for Australia to then have a coordinated response. So, for example, the first time that OSMAT was deployed was to the Pakistan floods back in, I think it was 2010. And that was a, a national response where uh, clinicians, experienced clinicians from all over Australia were brought together with the right skills and with specific training and you know vaccinations and all of that proper background so that you're sending experienced people who know what they're going to and you make sure that your response is actually helpful rather than a hindrance after a disaster. So that's really the, the rationale for OSMAT. And when did you become involved? 10 years now. So I did my OSMAT training in 2012. And then I was first deployed uh, in an OSMAT setting in 2013. Uh, and that was to the Philippines after Typhoon Haiyan. And that was the first time that OSMAT deployed the full field hospital. So we had an emergency department and we had operating theatres and a paediatric ward and all the capability that OSMAT had at that time was deployed. And I can't remember exactly how many clinicians were there, but it was certainly 50 or 60. That was an incredibly uh, interesting experience. And that's really what started me on, on the, I guess, the bigger journey that I've gone on. What did attract you to it in the first place? A couple of things. Firstly, firstly serendipity. I mean, I was working in Darwin. That's where the organisation was and, and I had the opportunity. I think also my clinical interests and my interests when I work in the hospital are all around entering a, a situation which is to some degree uncontrolled and trying to work through that. So for example, my main clinical interest is trauma. And I think that has some some aspects of that. I also really enjoy being the, the duty anaesthetist. So the anaesthetist who's in charge of you know, coordinating resources within the operating theatres that day, for example, and you may end up responding to emergencies and all of that I think is, is related. So I think firstly, it just suited that aspect of me. I also probably part of the reason that I wanted to do intensive care was that I wanted to challenge myself, put myself in a situation which is to some degree uncomfortable in order that you then become comfortable in a, in a wider degree of situations. And I certainly, I think, I had worked in um, low-resource environments before, and in Indonesia particularly, and in Kenya. And so I was keen, again, to put myself in those situations rather than the comfort of my own hospital and all the monitors and all the ways that we look after people in Australia and just try and, you know, extend that. So I think it was those sorts of aspects that attracted me to it. So Dan, in February 2020, you led the OSMAT COVID-19 response when Australians were repatriated from Wuhan in China to Christmas Island. You had one night's notice to pack and go. And at that stage, not a lot was known about COVID. How did you prepare mentally for that? And what was the team's role in that response? Well, I guess preparing mentally, the good thing about these deployments is you don't really have too much time to think about it. You get asked and then you go and it's it's very quick. I think that every time I now talk to a team when we're going on OSMAT deployments, uh, I say, I say, 
every Osmat deployment is unique and this one's no different. And of course that one was no different. It was very unusual in that it wasn't going to a low resource environment and helping after an infectious disease crisis or a, or a natural disaster. It was quarantining, which we hadn't done before. And you were dealing with people who'd been in a really difficult situation in Wuhan. You may, people may remember the stories of, you know, uh, front doors being welded shut and the streets being bare. And it was a really horrendous time for people. So we were very well aware that people would be exhausted and in a difficult situation. And instead of returning home, they were now being flown to an island 400 miles from off the coast of Indonesia. So we very much wanted it to be as, as good a time as we could make it, as unusual as that may sound. I, I have a comfort in things having never been done before. It makes me feel better. <laughs> Instead of, it sounds as if it should make you feel worse. You know, nobody's done this before. Oh my God, how do we do it? But actually, I always think, well, no one's done it before. So, so let's do our best and, you know, we'll work it out and we'll make mistakes. And this is the best thing about working with Osma is you're surrounded by excellent people. I can't tell you how good some of those people are. There's the medical people, but I also got to work with Border Force and the Australian Defence Force and the Australian Federal Police. And there was just a great attitude of how do we do this and how do we make it into something as, as good as it can be for people who are in a, di who are in a difficult situation. Uh, so in that sense, that makes it easy. It was hard work. It was particularly hard, very hard work for the first few days. But working with those people actually makes it it's just a pleasure. And so uh, that was one of the deployments that I enjoyed the most from for that reason. And those people weren't necessarily unwell, were they, the Australians? being repatriated. Correct. In fact, they were well because the Chinese authorities wouldn't let them on the aircraft if they were unwell. There were some difficult stories. So for example, there were families where one person had not been allowed on the aircraft and that was only determined at the gate and they had to make decisions. Does the rest of the family go? And one person went behind. How does that work? So that had been a bit traumatic. The journey for some people had been more than 50 hours because by the time they'd got through Wuhan and through checkpoints to the airport and on the aircraft back to Australia and then flown to Christmas Island. Then it was a really long journey, sometimes with multiple small children. But the, the clinical situation was that they had multiple times had their temperatures checked and so on. And so they were actually, despite being from Wuhan at that time, they were probably a low-risk cohort. It may be difficult to rate, but how would you rate that deployment compared to the other deployments you've done? I'm not sure how to rate it because I've enjoyed every single thing that I've done with Osma. I've, I've personally got a lot out of, which is a very selfish way to look at it, but it's certainly the way it's been. But it was it was definitely a positive experience. It was an unusual experience. But it's, it's funny that it now seems so long ago, given everything that the world's been through since that time. Um, and of course, we've we spent the best part of two years quarantining people in various locations in Australia. Um, but the fact was that the first time we had to do it was <laughs> on this remote island in the, uh, in the middle of the ocean. And not knowing a lot about COVID at that stage, was that something that was on your mind the whole time or were you more just get in and get your job done? Yeah, it was, it was never on my mind, really. I, I was never concerned. Other people were concerned. My kids, um, especially my oldest son, who at the time I think was 15, 14 or 15, you know, they watch the news and they hear all this stuff. And so I, for the first time, actually, that one of my kids was not keen on me going, which was the first time I'd ever had to have that sort of conversation about and understand it. 
um, and get him to understand it and work it through. The reason that that wouldn't that sort of thing wasn't enough to to say okay, well I'm not going to go was that these things need done and someone has to do them and that many Australians put far more at risk when they went to West Africa during the Ebola outbreak. But people, that had to be done because without anyone doing it, then it, people suffer. So I, I guess very strongly, it doesn't have to be me by any means, but I think it never crossed my mind at that, even at that time that there, was a, that there was an issue. Dan, a few months before the COVID deployment, you led an OSMAT team to Samoa to assist with the measles epidemic there. How was that experience? Uh, that was one of the more challenging OSMAT missions that I've been on. And I think anyone who, who did that in OSMAT were there for a good couple of months altogether would say the same thing because a measles epidemic primarily affects young children. And so most of those who were sick or who died were young kids. And so that in itself is obviously incredibly emotive and very difficult for people. It was also one of the missions that for the whole time it was very long hours. So, you know, there's exhaustion and, and emotion and so on. But again, one of the, not only do you get to work with great people in OSMAT and, and other Australian organisations, but working in the Pacific um, really demonstrates the, the resilience and the expertise of people who work there. So, you know, the, the paediatric doctors and the nurses, the local staff in the hospital in Samoa, were astonishing. They worked so hard and they were so dedicated and they were work every single day. And I was tired working the hours and they didn't leave after two weeks. They they kept going. Uh, and so I think that was a real a positive aspect of what was a very, very challenging and difficult situation. There's no question about that. So that was a lot of work, but and it was a devastating time in, in Samoa. But I guess part of what you do. How many deployments have you been on? I think six or seven deployments. Is there an experience that really stands out to you as something that will stay with you? So there's quite a few. I guess one that particularly stands out was actually from that first deployment in the Philippines. And we were actually packing up things and getting ready to depart. Osmat had been there for a month, so there had been a two-week rotation. And then I was on the second two-week rotation. And just as we were getting ready to leave, I think we'd we'd packed down one or two tents. Then we, there was a phone call to say that a helicopter had crashed uh, while it was they were delivering aid to an outlying area, and no one had been killed. It had landed on its skids, so it had it had fallen quickly but landed upright. Um, but they were going to bring the injured people to our facility. So we kind of had to unpack some things, get things ready. The whole team got together and we sort of separated in. And at that time, as, as is often the case uh, in these situations, we didn't know how many people were coming. It turned out that there was eight people injured altogether, but four of them were very minor injuries. So they, they'd actually gone somewhere else. And we had four people. And it, you know there were various injuries. There was spinal fractures and someone needed a laparotomy and, and there was fractured limbs and so on. And just to watch those, the, you know, those medical staff manage all that without any fuss, you know, in the dark, in a hot, sweaty environment, when you were, everyone was tired, we were leaving, I think the next day or the day after, uh, was really, really quite something. Now, my role in it was actually, uh, until we did a laparotomy, was mostly helping out other people. It wasn't 
giving an anaesthetic. I put some cannulas in, I helped the radiographer heave around his x-ray machine, which we've got a portable x-ray machine. But it was everyone just chipping in and, you know, working to, to make sure that everyone got good care. And that was definitely one of the, uh, the more inspirational things that I've seen that medical people do when I've been working overseas. Do you think that the deployments have changed you as a person in any way? You might have to ask someone else that question. <laughs> um, I, I don't, I don't really think so. I, I think part, part of what I do and why I do it was was because of the, I guess the person I am. The, the, that's not the right way to put that, but was because I believe it's really important that countries that that have a lot of resource make sure that they use a significant part of that to help countries that don't and that people that don't um, and and so that doesn't that, that's not any different it probably made me it probably has changed the way that I look at what we have and how in Australia the, the importance of the public health system and it's, I think having a very robust public health system is incredibly important um, because because people need it for their health and it's and it's I never I would never want to see that diminished but also the as clinicians that how we can do things and we, we don't need all the extra things things that cost a lot of money or things that take a lot of resource that are nice to have it's really important to be able to rely on your clinical acumen your clinical judgment and that you can actually do that and you can do it safely and you can look after people well without all the fancy bells and whistles that we sometimes have. Which leads me into my next question, Dan, which was how does the work that you do with Ausmat change your work when you're back here in the Sunshine Coast working as an, an anaesthetist? I'm not any different to anyone else. So I, I go through the same ups and downs and <laughs> grumbles and gripes and, you know, frustrations that everyone else, that every other person does. Um, so from that, in that sense, I'm not, I'm not sure how much impact it has. But I think that when you do have take the time to sit back and reflect, whether it's in meetings with, with colleagues or with management or so on, to think how lucky we are, uh, and whether that's because we've got quick and easy access to COVID vaccines, whether it's because we know that our children will get looked after well in an emergency um, and that we've really got it good. I know it doesn't always seem like we've got it good and some people have it better than others, but we're, we're broadly speaking extremely lucky. We're lucky to have a robust taxpayer funded public health system, which looks after us and we should do everything we can to make sure that we, we keep that because when you don't have it, life can be extremely tough. You mentioned before, Dan, about the countries you're going into and the resources that they have compared to what we have. How does that mean you need to provide care when you don't have the resources that we do? You can still provide excellent care. So we talked earlier on about Samoa and I mentioned that that was difficult because we we looked after young children who didn't survive. But that doesn't mean that you can't support the parents. It doesn't mean that you can't give excellent, compassionate care. Uh, and that's what people—that's what people did. And you don't need a lot of resource to do that. Of course, it helps, and of course, we're very lucky to have all all the things that we do. But you don't need them to be able to deliver excellent medical care. You can be good. You can be better than good. You can be excellent with with almost nothing, with compassion, and with empathy, 
uh, and with knowledge and with your technical skills. As medical people, we can all do that. We don't always have to have the fanciest, newest thing in, in order to deliver that. Dan, you were recently awarded for your work with Osmad. Can you tell us about that? Uh, yeah, um, briefly. I yeah, I received a, a medal called the Overseas Humanitarian Service Medal. So uh, that was for working uh, both in the Philippines and in Vanuatu. And uh, many of my colleagues in Osmad who work for Queensland Health, so Megan Chandler, who I work with in, in the Sunshine Coast, and Ange Jackson and Mark Little, who work in the work up in Cairns and other people, you know, they, they've all done excellent things. And so it's it's nice that you get something and I suppose it's recognition, but uh, my family was quite pleased with that. Congratulations. Dan, what's the most difficult part of your work with Osmat? So for me, you know, it's hard work, but I always enjoy it. And I, I always enjoy doing those things. The, the most difficult part is uh, my wife works full time as, uh, as a specialist anaesthetist as well. Um, and, she, and we've got three kids. And so, you know, I phone her up and I say, I've had a phone call uh, and they'd like me to fly to Samoa tomorrow morning. And every single time she says, yep. Uh, I think partly, if, you know, for her own sanity. <laughs> <laughs> but but I think she understands that it's important and she understands it's important for me for selfish reasons as well. And, and so she then has to suddenly work out how you juggle three children uh, both of, we're both Scottish originally so we don't have family in Australia and how you just suddenly snap your fingers and make all that work and so it's amazing to me how she manages that and the kids just kind of go with it um, and of course my colleagues have to put up with it as well because I'm not suddenly I'm not turning up to work tomorrow and we've got to cover theatre lists or whatever else is happening and so I'm the person who gets asked to talk about it on podcasts or on radio sometimes or whenever but actually the real hard work has been done by people who are having to cover the stuff that I leave behind, uh, particularly my wife, but also my colleagues. I do not take that lightly. I think it's incredibly important and it's a, it's a way in which everyone contributes to. So when Australia gives medical overseas aid, all my colleagues and my family contribute to that. And Dan, tell me when you're not overseas on a deployment or, or working in anaesthetics, what do you do to relax and wind down? Um, I've become, I suppose, more more boring as I've got older. I, I play I play music, so I play the piano and the guitar and a few other few other instruments. So get a bit of pleasure out of that. Um, and occasionally I exercise and used to do triathlons. And I'm trying I'm trying again, but I've got a, I've got a few kilos and a, <laughs> a few kilometres to go before I, before I take it on full time again. Well, I'm actually supposed to be doing the Noosa try in three months' time, so we'll see how that goes. Good luck. Before we finish up today, what's next for Dr Dan Holmes? Well, you know, the nature of these things is that you never know. I, I'm also involved in education with Osmat, so I, I sometimes go up to Darwin, and of course that's been very much on hold in the last couple of years too, so looking forward to being able to do that again. We're looking for um, adaptable and capable people for as team members, so... Um, whether in Queensland through the Osmat Queensland email address or whatever, you can register the, your, your interest for those types of things. So I'm looking forward to doing that. In terms of going overseas, that, that's a little bit up in the air um, and it always depends on what's happening and what the family are up to and so on. Thank you very much for talking with us, Dan. A pleasure. Thank you. <laughs>